All right, good deal, good deal. Let's get started. Uh, I want to tell you about a mountaintop experience I had when I was 18 years old. Uh, some friends of mine and I decided we wanted to climb a mountain, like actually climb a mountain, you know, and you don't, Midwest doesn't have a ton of those. We've got the Afton Alps, right? You know, it's a ravine. But uh, we wanted to climb a mountain, so uh, one of the friends organized it. He figured out what mountain we were going to climb, and he got us all, you know, we'd have to like hike in, and then we'd have to, you know, climb the summit the next day. It was like an actual mountain. Uh, I actually have a picture of it uh, on the next slide if you want to see. And uh, I really actually found the toughest picture of this mountain that I could find. So this is the mountain we climbed. Now, this looks like Mount Everest in this picture, right? It looks like, oh, man, you must have had to get up to altitude for six weeks. And adjust. Not, it's not really that bad. You, actually, if you saw it in the summer when we climbed it, it's basically just a hike. In fact, I was a little disappointed because I was wanting to tell you about this awesome mountain that I climbed. And I was looking it up online, and it's like rated, they have these different ratings for hiking, and it's like the easiest hike that there is to climb to the top of this mountain. And so we thought we were all clue, cool getting up there, and then, you know, of course there could be, you know, just families with their little kids, like, picnicking at the top, but it looks cool. It does look cool, and it was fun, uh, and it was, it was enjoyable enough, or is it remote enough, that the three of us were the only people on the top of the mountain. It was, uh, it's about 13,000 feet, something like that, and we got up there. There's nobody else around. It's in California, just south of Yosemite National Park. Beautiful view, beautiful view. So we get up there. And get to the top, and this is probably because I'm just a little Church of Christ boy and have been all my life. But we get to the top, all three of us, you know, church boys, and I, th- this sounds so cheesy to say this here uh, in public in front of everybody, but the three of us, three teenage boys, just start singing worship songs on the top of the mountain. That's what we did. We're up there and we're just like, I don't, we don't know what else to do. What do you do at the top of the mountain? Let's just start singing. So we're just belting out these songs, you know, at the top of our lungs, at the top of this mountain. In fact, we sang one of the songs that we sang earlier, I Exalt Thee. And it's just, it's kind of a special moment for me. I know I can't convey how, how cool it was to you. To you, you're looking at me like, okay, little church boy at the top of the mountain singing worship songs. But it was, a, it was just this uh, euphoric maybe is too strong of a word, but it's this experience, this mountaintop experience that's kind of like, you know, marked a, a, a moment in my life where I felt like close to God, seeing nature, being at the top of a mountain. I, I felt there's something about it that felt kind of, kind of amazing. I mean, there's just, I'm not a burst into music type of guy, and it was just like, you know, I don't, I don't walk around down the street just singing praise songs to God. It was just like this special kind of moment. And I think we use the concept or the term mountaintop to describe like significant experiences in our lives when we feel close to God, when we feel like something good has happened or we feel like God is present or God is near. We describe that as a mountaintop experience. However, I think, and this is true for me despite, you know, this mountaintop, I think that we have to kind of step back and recognize that at church, church, sometimes we describe things as common that not everybody, even in church, experiences as common. Sometimes we describe things in just everyday terms that not everybody feels the same way about. We say things like, you know, I could just tell God was with me. It's a good, good phrase, and we want to feel that. I just felt God's presence. I was baptized, and I came out of the water, and I felt the Holy Spirit all over me. Now, some people hear phrases like that, and they're like, what are you talking, I've never felt anything like that. 
I've been a Christian for a long time, and I've never had some mountaintop experience where I got goosebumps or something felt some way. I've never had that. I've never experienced anything like that. And so when we describe these things as common, sometimes people feel left out of the conversation. And to be honest with you, except for this experience on top of this mountain in California, I haven't felt a lot of those in my life either. And so sometimes people talk about it as if it's an everyday occurrence. Me and God, we're just walking through the fields together, talking, and life is awesome, and everything's wonderful. And they'll say things like, you know, God is my friend. Or maybe like this next picture I found, Jesus is my best friend. And for those of us that don't experience God like that, who don't experience Jesus like that, we look at pictures like that or we read things like that and we're like, I don't know, that doesn't sound like me. Am I missing out on something that I am supposed to be experiencing? Am I, is there something that I'm doing wrong? What are people getting that I'm not? Even the language we use in church can feel alienating sometimes to people. When we say things like, and this is something that is just ubiquitous around Christendom, when we say things like, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's a good thing. God wants, how about this, God wants a personal relationship with you. Now that's good, right? We want God to have a personal relationship with us. But imagine that phrase in any other context. Imagine me going to meet my neighbor and be like, uh, you know, hey Bob, it's my actual neighbor's name, hey Bob, I love you, and I would like a personal relationship with you. What, is that, what does that mean in the context of this relationship with God? What are we talking about? What, I mean, what are we thinking when we say things like that? What is the experience that's common to Christianity when we talk about issues like this? So I read an article this week that's titled, God is my best friend, just like that picture up there. And the author started by saying, and this is kind of an example, like I'm just cherry picking a little bit, but this is an example of what I think is indicative of church life when we talk about this idea of a relationship with God. This article is talking, making God our best friend. And he said, for me, my best friend is God. Well, good for you. That's awesome. Fantastic. And then he said, do you feel a deep and abiding friendship with God? This is the question. And so immediately, most of us, many of us would be like, I mean, I think I'm supposed to, so yes, but I don't know. What's that feel like? What are we talking about? And, uh, and he says, it's the most rewarding experience you will ever have. And these are all like great things. This is all something that maybe we would want in church and maybe we would want in this relationship with God. So how do we get, I'm reading this article, how do we get to BFF status with God? Where do we get that? Like how, how does that happen? And this is what he says. If you are a godly person, he offers you friendship. Well, that raises a lot of questions right there, right? Because there's a lot of times in my life that I don't know that I'm a godly person or I wouldn't describe myself that way. So if you are a godly person, then God wants to be friends with you. So if you're like God, God wants to be friends with you. Like, oh, well, what if I'm doing something wrong and what if God doesn't want to be friends with me? And then, kind of slightly contradictory, he writes, you don't have to be perfect. Well, I thought we had to be godly. Or you don't have to give a certain tithe. Or you don't have to go to church every Sunday. Or be perfect. He said perfect twice, yes, in the article. He wasn't a great writer. <laughs> and he doesn't, put, um, he doesn't put, this is what he says, he doesn't put a direction on how or when he offers his friendship. And then, this is how he ends, would you consider making God your best friend today? That's it. Well, what do I do with that? God, would you, would you be my best friend? What do you do? Is that, that's like third grade stuff, Right? Hey, let's be best friends, God. What, what about it? Now, I'm not trying to make fun of it because we're going to talk about today. I, 
take that back. I am trying to make fun of it, just to be clear. We are going to be talking about the idea of friendship and relationship with God and what that means. But I think it's important to be clear that we don't know what that means. That we don't have a common experience of this. That some people use this, this language that isn't, that isn't helpful to the rest of us because they talk about this relationship and a closeness and an intimacy with God that the most of us, maybe many of us, haven't experienced. And some of you have and some of you are like, I don't get what you're talking about, Patrick. You probably shouldn't be up preaching. Get down let me preach because I know what friendship with God. Me and God are BFFs. That's fantastic. But for the rest of us, how do we walk through this idea of what it means to have a relationship with God? What does it mean to be in God's presence? What does it mean to experience God? What does it mean to encounter God for, for the common person, the rest of us? And I want to tackle two questions in this sermon. We're going to be broadly tackling these questions in this series uh, as we go through. We're going to talk about the idea of what does it mean to have a relationship or friendship with God? And what does it mean to grow in a relationship with God? And we're going to do that by examining a mountaintop experience in the Bible by, uh, of someone who was called a friend of God. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to take uh, a look at the book of Exodus. And so we're going to kind of broadly, we're going to jump in and get, get caught up to what the story is. But I want to show you this, uh, this picture right here because this is the mountain. At least this is what some people think the mountain might be. This is one of the um, potential sites for Mount Sinai. And if you grew up going to church, you know about Mount Sinai. It's where God came down on the mountain. It's where Moses talked to God as a friend would talk to a friend the Bible describes. So this is Mount Sinai. So if we're, we're imagining this scenario, if we're imagining the story, this is kind of the place we might imagine it to be. Mount Sinai. So we're going to start, you don't have to read this, but you're going to be in the book of Exodus. If you want to read along and you can read like 500 words a minute, then jump in, feel free. Chapter 19, you can go there. But I want to give you like, get you caught up in this story because what we're going to do is we're going to go through real fast and then we're going to pause and go through slowly this encounter that Moses had with God. But I want you to understand the context of the encounter that Moses is having. So chapter 19, Israel's coming out of 400 years of slavery. If you're over 50, it's the Ten Commandments. If you're under about 30 years old, it's the Prince of Egypt. It's that story, right? It's the, the, the Red Sea parting. It's, it's all of this. It's God doing miraculous things. God's presence being with the people of Israel. So God sends them into the wilderness, and he brings them to this particular mountain. This may be the mountain, who knows? And he wants to establish a new nation, a new people, a new covenant, and he wants to give them the law the Constitution, the Magna Carta, the document by which they're going to establish their relationship with God for thousands of years. This is it. This is a big deal. So God asks the whole group. He talks to the whole group, and he says, hey, group, you guys want to be my people? And they're like, yes, we want to be your people. That sounds fantastic. You've saved us from slavery. We're in. And then he says, okay, I want to talk to Moses about the particulars. And the nation says, sure, whatever you and Moses work up, totally in. Now I'm paraphrasing drastically, but you get the idea. God says, I'm going to give Moses the details. So Moses would go up to the top of this mountain, and he would talk with God, and then he would come back down. He kept going up and down. Moses had to be in great shape. In the story of Exodus, he probably goes up and down ten times. So Mo- God, Moses would go up, and God would say, okay, here's some things. Um, let's, no other gods, okay? Can we agree on that, Moses? Will you tell the people that? And no graven images. Let's just, none of that. And so Moses would go down to the people, and they would say, hey, are you guys okay with no other gods, just this one God? And people would be like, yes, absolutely, we're in. How about no graven images? You guys okay with that? Yes. Okay, I'm going to go out and talk to God. This is what happened for like 12 chapters. Moses is going up, getting commandments, and he's coming back down, and the people are like, absolutely. And finally, the people say, listen, whatever you work out with God is fine. We're fine with it. You deal with God. You be the go-between, and that'll be great, and you just come back and tell us what we have to do. 
So in chapter 24, I know this is, we're going through fast, but in chapter 24, imagine the entire nation camped around the bottom of the mountain, maybe, maybe a little bit distant. The presence of God is descended on the mountain. You've heard this before in Sunday school. The cloud and fire and lightning, it's a consuming fire. I mean, it's just this intense presence. And the people are like, not, I'm not going anywhere near that. And Moses, like, you go talk to God. God looks like he's an intense person. I don't know that I want to have a direct interaction with him. So Moses goes up to the top of the mountain, and he walks into this cloud. And then he disappears. He disappears for 40 days. And the people at the bottom of the mountain, they see this cloud, they see this, all this stuff going on, and they're like, you know what? I think, I think Moses died. I think he's gone. I mean, he was, he was the guy telling us all the rules, but I think he's gone. I think he's up dead on the mountain, and we're not going up to find the dead body. So that's it. Uh, that's, uh, what do we do now? And somebody, they start talking amongst themselves, and somebody says, you know what we need to do? I, we need a different God. That was good for then, but we're, we just got to get a different God. And so you know the story, Aaron, right? He gets everybody's gold and jewelry, and they make another God. And Moses and God are up on the mountain, and Moses is like, hey, you got to, uh, or God is like, you got to figure out something's going on with these people. Joshua says, it sounds like there's something going on down there. So Moses goes down to find out that they are worshiping other gods in the middle of establishing a relationship with God. This is like, this, God is steamed because this is like at the wedding or at the wedding rehearsal, the groom setting up a date with one of the bridesmaids. This is going to be a great relationship. Like, hey, what are you doing this weekend? I think I'm free. I can be free after the wedding. You know, that, that's like total betrayal, total lack of trust. It's awful. So God is upset. Moses is upset. And if you remember watching the Ten Commandments, what does Moses do with the, the tablets of stone? He breaks them. You're like... Moses, seriously, those are pretty important. You can't just get mad and throw stuff. Have any of you ever made your mother so mad that she broke something? Oh, me either. Yeah, no, yeah. I haven't, I haven't done that. So Moses goes back up to the mountain one more time, and this is the context. This is where we're going to slow down. The people of God who have agreed to this relationship with God have just totally stabbed God in the back. God's like, are you serious? We just got started and you're already, you're already off track here, like crazy off track. So Moses goes back up to God and he wants to just talk with him and work something out. He's like, God, we, we got to figure this out because these are your people. We've, we still want this relationship with you, so we got to figure this out. So we're going to slow down a bit. Exodus thirty three eleven. if you're actually looking in your uh, Bibles, Exodus chapter 33, verse 11. And this is what, it's just a little parenthetical statement to describe what's about to happen. Moses would speak. This is the Lord, rather, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Wouldn't that be awesome? That would be incredible. You know what, though? I was thinking about this week. I'd be like, how, what would I do if I could speak to God face to face? And I've got to be perfectly honest with you. This is what I would do. I would want God's opinion on everything so I could go to other people and say, see, told you so. I was right all along. (laughs) God said, that's what I would do. That's what I would do with that power. And maybe that's why God's like, that's why I'm not speaking you face to face, Patrick, because you would misuse it. So he talks to God face to face, and this is the conversation. And this is where we're going to kind of jump into what we're talking about. Thirty-three, twelve. Moses said to the Lord, look, you've been telling me, lead these people. I mean, remember the burning bush? Lead these people. But then you said, you're not going to have anything to do with these people because they broke the covenant and you said you'll send an angel. You can't go with us anymore because this is, we've messed up. He, and he said, I don't know who you're supposed to send with me. I don't know what to do now. Like you said, lead these people. We're out in the middle of this journey and now you're saying, no good, we're done, we're over. 
And, and, and I, you have said, I know you by name, and I have, I have found, or you have found favor with me. And this is what he says. If you are pleased with me, verse 13, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember, this nation is your people. You brought us out of Egypt. You, we're here now. This is who you've got. You've got to dance with the one who brung you, right? This is pretty brazen for, for Moses to talk to God this way. Moses, though, uh, this is interesting. Verse 14, God changes his mind. Don't let that fact pass you up. That's a pretty interesting little tidbit. Verse 14, the Lord replied, my presence will go with you. Okay, I'm back in. Sounds good. Let's do this. But Moses, have you ever been so upset at somebody like your husband or your wife? You're having a conversation. You're telling them what's wrong. And they're like, okay, you're right. I'm sorry. But you've got anger momentum, right? And you just keep going. You've got more reasons. You're not done with the reasons why you're upset. And Moses is still going. God's like, you've got it. I'm with you. I'm going with you. My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. That sounds good. Verse 15, then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with you, do not send us up from here. And God's like, I just said I'm going with you. Moses is not like done like his arguments. He'd been, he's been working them up all day, and he's not done telling God what he thinks. I will go with you. And, and God's like, okay, that sounds good. Moses can't figure that out. And the Lord, verse 17, and the Lord said to Moses, I will do this very thing you've asked. I told you, I'm going to do it. We're in. We're back in. Everything's back back together because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Now it's interesting to me. Let's just pause for a second and think about this. Moses doesn't want God's promise without God's presence. I think that's a very important distinction here. Moses doesn't want God's promise. He doesn't want God to send him on to the promised land. He doesn't want Canaan. He doesn't want this new nation unless God goes with them. Moses doesn't want God's promise without God's presence. What does it mean to have a relationship with God? And this is going to be one of those things where you're like, I wait, I sat here and listened to you talk about climbing a mountain for this. This isn't, this isn't that good. But what does it mean to have a relationship with God? I think this is so profound, at least it is for me. A relationship with God isn't just a means to an end. A relationship with God is the end. Now, some of you are like, great, yeah, you put it up on the PowerPoint, so I'm supposed to just, yeah, think that that's a great point. But I want to I offer that maybe a lot of us struggle with this. Maybe a lot of us are more interested in what we get from God than actually having a relationship with God. Some of you are feeling, well, it seems like a distinction without a difference. What are you talking about? I was reading about a dating app. I was not interested in dating people. I just, <laughs> my marriage is fine. We're, 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 I'm not dating. But I was reading about a dating app called Carrot Dating. Carrot, like the vegetable, right? Carrot Dating. And the idea is, is that you don't pick from different profiles of people. So you don't scroll through and say, oh, she's good looking, or he looks rich, or whatever. You don't scroll through that and try to pick a person. You actually, this is true, you pick from events. So what this is, is the dating app. You'll go through, and the the app will say uh, something like skydiving, or dinner at this fancy restaurant, or whatever. And then you you think, I want to go skydiving. And so you it's the girl who picks, I want to go skydiving. And then it matches her up with a guy who is offering skydiving as a date. So you don't pick the person, you pick the thing that they'll give you, right? Now, this sounds like a fantastic idea, right? This sounds like the basis for a solid future relationship between a man and a woman. This is a great idea, isn't it? 
You guys aren't saying no, which really has me a little worried about what your marriages are based on here. And I know some of you are like, maybe you're too busy looking up. What's this dating app, Carrot, some of you single people? Like, how do I get that? Um, but, so, concert or whatever, and then in order to do it, you go on this date with this person. That's the, that's the, the, the draw. So it's, it's essentially a bribe, right? You bribe this person to go on a date with you. So I was like, this sounds interesting. Is this for real? This can't be for real. So I looked it up, like, on their app uh, or on the website. Go to the next slide if you would. Uh-oh, the carrot dating app is no longer available. Well, I cannot believe that business model wasn't sustainable. That just seems crazy to me that people didn't decide how they wanted to, to spend their lives with a person based on what that person could give them. That seems, that seems crazy, right? It would be crazy to have a relationship with a person solely for what that person could give you. It would be like having, getting married so you could have a wedding. It would be like saying, you know what? I would love to have a baby shower. I guess I got to get pregnant. If you want the rewards or the blessings or the good things, but you don't really care about the person. The person is secondary. Any warm body will do if you just want a wedding, but don't really care about a marriage. Now, the thing is, I, well, let me say it this way. I'm not sure that everyone wants a relationship with God. Sometimes me. I'm not sure that everyone wants a relationship with God. I think maybe they want a relationship with what, what a relationship with God will get them. It's a complex way to say something that probably could be much more simple. They want a relationship with what God will give them. And we've all experienced this, right? We've all experienced this. How many of you have gotten... I, I got a call uh, a couple weeks ago from someone who was very warm and kind and friendly. And they asked me how my day was going. They called me by my first name. And they wanted to help me out. They wanted to give me this wonderful offer for an entertainment package that would suit all my needs. And uh, it, it was them being generous to me. We can give you a good deal, probably today only. And when I said you know, I, I think I'm pretty happy with my entertainment needs. It was like the relationship didn't exist anymore. It's like they didn't care about me. It was like they didn't want a relationship with me, like this person completely changed. It wasn't about my needs anymore. It was almost like the whole relationship was based on what I could do for them. And when I couldn't do that thing for them, they didn't want a relationship with me anymore. Do you think it, God ever feels like that? When God doesn't meet our arbitrary expectations, and we're like, I'm not interested in God anymore. I think that guy on the phone might have been using a relationship to get my money. Do you think we ever treat God that way? To use God? God, you know what I want? I want to feel like I'm saved. I, I want to be able to sleep at night and ha not have to worry about the guilt of worry about what might happen if, if I die. I don't really want transformation. I really want salvation, but not transformation. I, 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 want to, I, I want what you can give me, God, but I don't really want that holiness thing that you're talking about where I've got to make decisions and I've got to sacrifice and I've got to deny myself. Not interested, God. I want what you... God, I really want a sense of overwhelming peace. I don't really want to make different decisions. 
I want to do what I want to do. I want to spend the money the way I want to spend my money. But will you please give me a sense of peace, God? That would be great. I don't want to worry, God. I'm going to do things that will cause me to worry. But will you take away my stress and worry? But, but I don't really want to change anything. I want, I want the, the sense of salvation, the sense of a relationship with God without any transformation. I don't want any hospital visits. I don't want to be laid off. I don't want any Caesar D's on my test. That would be great. God, give me the rewards. Hold the relationship. If my relationship with God is more about what I want from God, then my relationship with God is in danger when God doesn't meet my expectations. And, and it's not like anybody's like, well, God didn't give me what I want. I guess I'm going to be an atheist now. I think we settle into a distant, arm's-length relationship with God where maybe we get a little bit because we go to church, but we're not really transformed. We're not really changed. Isn't it true that the elements of a relationship with God are the first things to disappear when, when we're not getting, when life gets busy or we're not getting what we want? Like our prayer life, right? Reading the Bible, you know, those things go right out the window. God is the first thing to go right out the window because I think that's indicative of the fact that we want a relationship with what God will give us, not necessarily with God. God, I'll be your friend. Give me what we want. Carrot dating app. So, in part, the answer to the question, what does it mean to have a relationship with God? It means to be interested in God himself. This is the basics, right? Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. Jesus declared, Love the Lord your God for all the blessings that he will bestow on you in this life. No, that's it. Love the Lord your God. I want a relationship. It's not a means to an end. Are there blessings? Are there rewards? Are there great things that come along with a relationship with God? Absolutely. But if we treat it like a means to an end and we impose our expectations on God, we're in trouble because God's not always going to meet our expectations because our expectations are flawed and imperfect. And God is perfect and unflawed. So in part, to answer the question, what does it mean to have a relationship with God? It means to be interested in God himself. And that's, I know that feels so simple and basic and trite, but maybe this is what I had to do as I was working through this. I had to stop and say, God, I, I want you to hold me accountable. I want to know you. I want to learn about you. I want to be interested in you and not just what you can give me. Let's move on. In verse 18, Moses says, this is right after God's like, okay, I'll go with you. We're in. Let's do this. Moses said, now show me your glory. It's kind of a strange segue. Feels a little different. Like I'm in and Moses says, show me your glory. (laughs) What does that mean? And and God God says, okay, I will do that. But you got to understand, I am a, I'm a different being than you, and you can only ha- handle a, a fraction of a percentage of who I really am. And so they make, this is such the, the weirdest story. This is why you got to read your Bible, because the Bible is such a strange book sometimes. And God says, here's what we're going to do. I know a place just down the road where there's this like little cave, little part in the rock. You're going to stand in there. I'm going to cover that part of the rock with my hand. Then I'll walk by, and then I'll take my hand off, and you can see me as I'm walking away. Such a weird story, Right? And so, essentially, God is saying, Moses, you can't handle, handle all of me, but I'll let you see my backside. That's what he's saying. I'll let you see the back of me as I'm walking away. That's it. That's all you can handle. And this is a special deal. Because everybody that comes into a relation, uh, encounter with God, in fact, can I just pause for a second? Some of us that say we want to experience the presence of God, if God were to just rip the roof off the building right now, we would all be running. We would run away because the presence of God is so intense and so holy and so amazing. We couldn't handle it. We can't handle it. And God says, even Moses, even someone that I talk to, as a friend talks to face-to-face, you just can't handle it. So I'll stick you in the cave, cover you with my hand. 
I'll walk by and you can see my backside. And then Moses, after this encounter, we'll talk about this in a second, but Moses' face is glowing for weeks. And the people of Israel are like, man, Moses, we cannot take it. Like, we can't sleep at night because your face is on. Will you, will you please cover your face with a bag? And so he would. He would, like, talk to him, then he'd put a, fa- a bag over his face, and he'd walk around and do his, his, his business with, you know, with, a, with a bag over his face. It's just the craziest, strangest story. So they set up this, this, this interaction, how this is going to work. Show me your glory. And then this is, this is interesting to me. And this is an important verse. Exodus chapter 34, verse 5. This is where the interaction goes down. So Moses is hiding in the rock. He's hiding there. The hand of God comes over. And God comes down. It says, the Lord came down in the cloud. And he stood there with him. Oh, man, this is, this is intense. And he proclaimed his name. Our Bibles can't even write the name down. They, they have to substitute the word Lord. But that's, that's the name of God. I am Yahweh. However, you, however it's pronounced. So we substitute that because the name of God is even so intense. The people didn't want to mess that up. He proclaimed his name, the Lord, and he passed in front of Moses. And this is what he proclaimed. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate. This is God speaking about himself. This is God describing himself. This is God, the most self-aware being in the universe, describing who he is to someone he considers a friend. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and great, uh, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And this is so interesting. We don't have time to get into this right now. But he says he maintains love to thousands and forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, says God, revealing himself to people. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Just real quick, before you get too distracted from that, it is good of God to hate evil in any capacity. That is a good God to hate evil. That is a loving God to hate evil. That's a good thing. So we get caught like, wait, the children are, 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 are guilty for the sin of the parents? Boy, <laughs> shouldn't ask this because some of you have parents and kids in here. But do children suffer the consequences of bad choices that we make? Yes. Do we suffer consequences of bad choices that our parents have made? Absolutely. This doesn't... This doesn't Keep God from being a loving God. Some of you are looking at your parents right now like, I remember that bad choice he made. Don't do that. Don't just look down. Look at your Bible. But this is interesting. This is what I, this is what I get from that. Because I'm struck when I read that. I'm struck that, I've got to be honest, I'm a little underwhelmed. Now, this is not because God isn't gracious or compassionate. But I'm like, God's revealing himself. You'd think we'd at least learn something new, Right? God gives us a little secret, a little insight, a little something different. I mean, we knew you were loving and gracious and compassionate. We've known that all our lives. We, we, you'd think you would give us something new. I, I, I guess I kind of thought there would be a little bit more. And I'm, I'm immediately struck by the fact that this opportunity to reveal more of himself to Moses, and there's not really anything new. This is what God's been telling him all along. My son Liam is four years old, and he loves knowing things. I know I talk about him all the time. Apologize. He loves knowing things. And so he'll come up, you know, he'll... he'll He'll say, actually, to me or, or his mom, he'll say, how, so how are, Dad, how are cars made? You know, of course I have no idea. And I'm like, robots, buddy. I think it's robots. <laughs> and, of course, that's interesting to him, like, robots? So thanks to the magic of YouTube, which you couldn't, you know, I didn't have growing up. I just had to take my parents' word for it. I didn't know if they are making it up or not. I can show him an assembly line at a Ford factory, like, check out all these robots putting the parts on the cars. That's the coolest thing if you're a four-year-old kid. And so he watches this, these robots make the, oh, wow, how are boats made? Well, let's find a video about that. How are all these different things? You know, how, he just wants to know this stuff, right? So I come home one evening, um, and 
my son is sitting on one of the stairs in our house, and he's just sitting there, and he's like, he says this, and I wrote this down immediately afterward. I I don't want you to think I'm making it up or revisionist history or anything here. He said, Dad, we need to talk. (laughs) Wow, okay. Sounds serious, buddy. Everything okay? Going okay in your life? You know, I know four years, is that's a big burden. You never know what's gone on. Four years old. We need to talk. This is, so I come over, I sit next to him. I'm, you know, this is a special father-son moment, right? We need to talk. What do, what do we need to talk about? Oh, what's, what's up, buddy? What, what's going on? He goes, Dad, can you show me a video of how people are made? And I said, no, we cannot. We cannot show you a video of how people are made. Not for lack of videos out there, but we cannot. That is... In fact, I don't want you ever to watch a video of how people are made. Let's never, let's block all those sites, right? Show me that. Now, the reason I tell him no is not because at some point we're not going to have to have a conversation. In fact, it's probably going to be the opposite, right? It's going to be me sitting on the steps and, hey, Liam, buddy, uh, we need to talk, right? You know, and birds and the bees, right? That's going to be the conversation. It's not because we're never going to have that conversation. It's because Liam at four doesn't have the capacity to understand that conversation. Now we can tell him, well, you know, Ma, you came from a special place in your mommy's tummy, right? You know, but at some point that's not going to be enough. Or I hope it'll always be enough, actually, to be perfectly honest with you. Liam will just go through his life. I came from a special place, guys. I don't know. I don't know what's wrong with you. His capacity for understanding is limited. I'm not sure that our growth in God is learning new things, but rather growing in the depth or the capacity to understand what we already know about God. And this, is, I think, is really important because we want to know new things about God. But it, let, let me give you an example. If a newlywed husband says, oh, I love my wife, she's so beautiful, we're like, oh, isn't that cute? It's so adorable. You guys keep up that attitude because you got a lot of years that will wear that attitude away, right? That's wonderful. Good for you guys. But if you see a 60-year-old, 60-year-old, not 60-year-old couple, not that that's old. If you see a couple who's been married 60 years and the husband still says, oh, I love my wife so much. She's so beautiful. Now, now, same words, but doesn't the meaning sort of expand a little bit? Now, this is not to say that you can't love or think your wife's beautiful, but doesn't the experience and the understanding just expand? It's the same words, but they take on maybe a larger meaning because they encompass so much more uh, of life than what maybe somebody else has been able to have, been able to experience. This is why, this is why at times, I've told you, I've confessed this before, I am a know-it-all, right? I'm a know-it-all, and it's a, I'm a work in progress. I stop myself from saying the word actually all the time. I hear something wrong, actually. My wife, my wife hates this about me, so I'm working on it, right? Hates is a strong word. She loves me despite my flaws. But I am a, a little bit of a know-it-all, and so this is why at times in my life, and sometimes I still, and I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I'm confessing before you today, I have at times in my life felt like I've pretty much got, got God figured out. I've got this Christianity thing figured out. Grace, I, I understand grace, mercy, I, I got it. Compassion, yeah. Slow to anger, yeah. I, 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 19 years old, I've got it. Now, this is not to say that I did not have a concept of it, but my capacity for understanding that is way more limited, Right? For me, 
one of the light bulb moments in my life was when I had kids. Now, this is not to say that everybody has to experience the same thing. But when I had kids, my daughter, my oldest daughter, uh, Taya, was probably one, two years old, right? And somebody was reading a passage that it says, we can call God Father. And I'm like, a light bulb goes off. And I'm like, wait, 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 wait a second. Hang on. Are you telling me that God feels about me like I feel about my daughter? No, I'm not telling you that. God feels way much more about you than you feel about your daughter. You have an imperfect love for your daughter. God has a perfect love for you. What? Now, I had heard those verses all my life, but at this point in my life, God expanded my capacity for understanding what that meant a little bit, a little bit. And I think growing in a relationship with God is not learning new things, but allowing God to expand our capacity for understanding things that we already know. But we begin to know them on a deeper, more experiential, more, uh, uh, more intimate level, for lack of a better term. I want you to open up your hymnal, if you would. We're not, we don't do closing songs here very often, and we're not going to do one today, so just warning you. But I want you to take your hymnals, if you would. And I want you to turn to song number 490. I want to illustrate something. Or 590, rather. You guys know this song? 590. You guys know Jesus is all the world to me? It's a good song, right? We don't sing, uh, we don't sing all the old hymns all the time, but there's some good old hymns. Jesus is all the world to me. You want me to sing it? That was not a good enough response, so never mind. But I'm not, I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> Jesus is all the world to me, my life, my joy, my all. He is my strength from day to day. Without him, I would fall. It's a nice word. It's good sentiment, right? Sounds good. I like it. When I am sad, to him I go. No other one can cheer me so. When I am sad, he makes me glad. He's my friend. It's good, good, good hymn, right? It, 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 it's a pretty good hymn. I, you guys are thinking I'm about to make fun of it, so you're like a little unsure if I should say this is a good hymn. It's a good hymn. Jesus is all the world to me. I want to read, uh, read you a story as we wrap up this morning. An author by the name of Thomas Schmidt, he wrote about this, uh, and I can't remember the name of the book, I apologize, but you can, I'll look it up later. And I'm going to read him uh, word for word. The state-run convalescent hospital is not a pleasant place. It is large, understaffed, and overfilled with senile and helpless and lonely people who are waiting to die. On the brightest of days, it seems dark inside, and the smell of sickness and stale urine permeate everything. I went there once or twice a week for four years, but I never wanted to go there, and I always left with a sense of relief. It is not the kind of place one gets used to. On this particular day, I was walking in a hallway that I had not visited before, looking in vain for a few people who were maybe alive enough to receive a flower and a few words of encouragement. The hallway seemed to contain some of the worst cases, people strapped onto carts and wheelchairs looking completely helpless. As I neared the end of the hallway, I saw an old woman strapped in a wheelchair. The empty stare and white pupils of her eyes told me that she was blind. The hearing aid over one ear told me that she was nearly deaf. One side of her face was being eaten by cancer. And I learned that this woman was 89 years old and that she had been here, bedridden, blind, and nearly deaf and alone for 25 years. This was Mabel. I don't know why I spoke to her. She looked less likely to respond than most of the people I saw in the hallway. But I put a flower in her hand and said, Here's a flower for you. Happy Mother's Day. She held the flower up to her face and tried to smell it. And then she spoke. And much to my surprise, although somewhat garbled, her words were obviously produced by a clear mind. She said, Thank you. It's lovely. But can I give it to someone else? I can't see it. I'm blind. 
I said, of course. And I pushed her in her chair back down the hallway, found another patient. Mabel held out the flower and said, here, this is from Jesus. That was when it began to dawn on me that this was not an ordinary human being. Later, I wheeled her back to her room and learned about her history. She had been here for 25 years, getting weaker and sicker with constant headaches, backaches, stomachaches, and then eventually cancer. Mabel and I became friends over the next few weeks, and I went to see her once or twice a week for the next three years. And I never heard her speak of loneliness or pain. It was not many weeks before I had turned from a sense that I was being helpful to her to a sense of wonder, and I would go to her with a pen and paper to write down the things that she would say. During one hectic week, I was frustrated because my mind seemed to be pulled in ten different directions at once with all the things that I had to do and think about. The question occurred to me, what does Mabel have to think about hour after hour, day after day, week after week, not even able to know if it's night or day? So I went to her and I asked Mabel, what do you think about when you lay here? And she said, I think about Jesus. I sat there and thought for a moment about the difficulty for me of thinking about Jesus for even five minutes. And I asked, what do you think about Jesus? And she replied slowly and deliberately as I wrote, I think about how good he's been to me. He's been awfully good to me in my life, you know. Lots of folks would think I'm kind of old-fashioned, but I don't care. I'd rather have Jesus. He's all the world to me. And then Mabel began to sing an old hymn. Jesus is all the world to me. My life, my joy, my all. He is my strength from day to day. Without him I would fall. When I am sad, to him I go. No other one can cheer me so. When I am sad, he makes me glad. He's my friend. The author finishes up by saying this. This is not fiction. Incredible as it may seem, a human being really had this kind of faith. And as I think about that story, and as I read that, it strikes me that Mabel had a much bigger capacity for understanding God than I do. When I read this song, oh, that's a cute little song, it's nice, I don't care if we sing it or not. When Mabel sings this song, does it not reflect a depth of closeness and friendship with God that I don't yet have the capacity to have? Because knowing God isn't just knowing new things about God. It's allowing God to expand our understanding of who he is. I'm going to wrap up, and I want to add, just by answering this question, what does it mean to be growing in a relationship with God? By allowing God to, to stretch us and expand and change us. And this might require something of us. If I want to know God's faithfulness more, I might actually have to place some dependence on him. I might actually have to sacrifice or risk for him. If I want to know him more, if I want to know him. If I want to know about God's mercy more, I might have to go to him and just be brutally honest with with who I am and my mistakes and confess to him and other people, as the scriptures tell us, in order to know God's mercy and compassion. Because I don't know God's full mercy and compassion because I don't know that I've repented of everything that I should repent of. If I want to know God more, I've got to stretch myself. Being interested in God is not just about what God can get us. Being uh, in a relationship with God, a growing relationship with God, is not just about um, knowing new things about God, but it's allowing God to change us. So here's my challenge for you this week, is, is a, a simple prayer. A, a simple prayer, David prayed it, Paul talked about it in Philippians, and it's just this, like, God, I want to know you more. And I want to tell you something. This is important. That is a dangerous prayer. 
Because God may require of you things that you are not yet willing to give in order to have that sort of closeness and relationship with him. But if you want to know him, if you want to live that first and greatest commandment to love God, this is where it starts. Let's begin by loving God. Paul? Some of you 